Welcome to State of Health Podcast. This is your host, J-Mart. On this podcast, I will share my knowledge and experience as a personal trainer and health coach and talk about my interests and experiments in physical training, nutrition, and other lifestyle factors involved in health. On this episode of the podcast, I will introduce and go over the methods, results, and conclusions of a study to test the Wim Hof method. Who is Wim Hof and what is his method? Wim Hof is a Dutch extreme athlete who has broken several crazy world records, such as longest time in direct full body contact with ice, or farthest swim under ice, earning himself the nickname of the Iceman. <laughs> Wim claims that his feats of extreme endurance are not something unique to him, but rather something that can be developed by anyone over time using his method. The Wim Hof method consists of three components, meditation, cold exposure, and breathing techniques. In the study I'm going to present in this episode, Wim taught and trained his three-part method to study participants for less than a week, and they had approximately an additional week to practice on their own, after which they were tested by getting injected with endotoxin. What is endotoxin? Well, it's a molecule from bacteria which, when injected, has been shown to cause the subject to experience fever-like symptoms as the body's innate immune system responds. That is everybody except Wim Hof. He had reduced symptoms and had a difference in his immune response. So the question is, could other people trained by Wim Hof be able to have a different response to getting injected by endotoxin after learning and training the Wim Hof method for a short period of time? So if all that sounds interesting, then this podcast episode is for you. Just before we get started, this is a reminder that you can get my free bodyweight training program, Body Basics, which requires no equipment by going to subscribepage.com slash bodybasics. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to smash the like button for the YouTube algorithm. Hit subscribe if you like the content and hit the notification bell too. If you're listening through a podcast app, could you please share the podcast with a friend who may also enjoy listening and discussing it with you? Lastly, I would appreciate it if you would leave a review for the podcast on the platform of your choice, as that will help other people discover us and join the State of Health tribe. Thank you in advance. Let's begin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of State of Health. I'm your host, J-Mart. Thank you for joining me for another one. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that is the uh, Dutch extreme athlete known as Wim Hof, also uh, known as Iceman. If you've never heard of him, be prepared to be amazed. This man is truly something special, and he's had a big impact on my thinking and in influencing me in how I think about health and fitness. Uh, let's do a quick little search with his name and see what we can find. Here is what you will find if you do a quick Google search of his name, spelled W-I-M-H-O-F. If you look at images, you'll see a bunch of pictures of this man all over on uh, sitting on icebergs, in, exposing his body basically to cold, extreme temperatures. If we look at his Wikipedia page, we'll see that he's a 62-year-old uh, Dutch national he is an extreme athlete, and he has a bunch of Guinness World Records. In 2000, he set the world record for the farthest swim under ice with a distance of 57.5 meters. He's got a bunch of records. In 2007, he set the world record for fastest half marathon barefoot on ice and snow with a time of 2 hours, 16 minutes, and 34 seconds. 
Uh, he ha- also has set the world record for the longest time in direct full body contact with ice. He's beat it a total of 16 times with the most recent time being in 2013, setting the record for one hour, 53 minutes and two seconds. And in 2007, he's also climbed an altitude of 7.2 kilometers on Mount Everest, wearing nothing but shorts and shoes. It says he did abort the attempt to go all the way to the top due to a recurring foot injury, but that's still pretty impressive that he did that. So yeah, you can see that extreme athlete doesn't begin to describe the things that this man is capable of. And if you stop and think about like, how is he able to do all these things? One person might say, well, maybe there's something special about him. Maybe there's something about his genetics that gives him the ability to withstand all these difficult to endure tasks and be able to do all this. And uh, that's what explains it. However, if you talk to Wim himself and you ask him about it, he says that he's tapping into human potential that is within not just himself, but within everybody. And in order to prove that, he had actually gotten the help of certain scientists from his home country, from Netherlands, to do some studies on him and to be able to kind of test this hypothesis. He was able to show that there's nothing special about him and that anything that he's capable of doing, he can teach other people to do as well. So let's take a look at the experiment that they did on Wim and the people he taught and what are some of the conclusions we can come to from learning about it. Here is the article that we will be going over. The title is Voluntary Activation of the Sympathetic Nervous System and Attenuation of the Innate Immune Response in Humans. Here are the authors of the paper and this was published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science of the United States of America, PNAS. This is a well-known, well-respected scientific journal. Before we get in deep into looking at what the study is actually uh, talking about, let's dissect the title of the article a little better. Here I've highlighted in red the sympathetic nervous system and also the innate immune response. So let's talk about that, the sympathetic nervous system. Here's a little diagram to help us understand the nervous system. So the nervous system can be broken down into two major parts, the peripheral and the central nervous system. So the central nervous system is, of course, the brain and the spinal cord. And the peripheral nervous system is all the nerves that stem from the spinal cord and extend to our limbs, to the the basically ends of our body, to our skin and fingertips and, and so on. Now, the peripheral nervous system can be further subdivided into two subtypes the somatic and the autonomic the somatic you can think of it is all the things that help control external actions such as our muscles so anytime you're reaching for any sort of object in life or you're moving or anything like that all those actions are controlled by the somatic nervous system the autonomic nervous system those are the nerves that control all the internal activities of our body all the things that are going on in the organs and glands so that's called autonomic nervous system because, as you can imagine, very, it's very unlikely for you to be consciously be in control of those things. Those are automatically under control. So that's the autonomic nervous system. And then we can further subdivide the autonomic nervous system into two categories, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, these are commonly thought of as the fight and flight response, the sympathetic nervous system, fight and flight. And the rest and digest, the calming one, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. So let's go back to the title. And here we see, even though I just said the sympathetic nervous system is part of the autonomic nervous system, which is not usually under voluntary control, the title of this article says 
voluntary activation of the sympathetic nervous system. So that's already very interesting, something very new, something very different from what we already currently know. So it's saying that there is possibly a way to voluntarily activate the sympathetic nervous system and that possibly this is associated with the attenuation, which is another word for decrease, I guess, of the innate immune response. So what is the innate immune response? So we can think of immunity belonging into two categories. There's innate immunity and there's adaptive immunity. Uh, the major differences between these two things are that in innate immunity, we have well, white blood cell types such as dendritic cells, neutrophils, macrophages, and natural killer cells. And these cell types kind of move all around the body and they have the ability to either release these things called cytokines, which are depicted by these yellow dots in this image, or they also have the ability to phagocytose, which means kind of like eat any like uh, pathogens. So they can basically consume and engulf something that doesn't, shouldn't belong in your body. And then by engulfing it, then they can proceed with its destruction. So that would be the innate immunity. And then the adaptive immunity, there's also white blood cells involved, but they're different types. There's mainly B cells and T cells. And B cells are well known because they release uh, high affinity antibodies towards pathogens. And then uh, the T cells can help with that. Uh, aspect of B, uh, B cell proliferation, and they, they also release uh, cytokines as well. And then the other major difference between these two is that innate immunity is not specific towards any pathogen, and it acts very quickly early on, whereas adaptive immunity is very specific towards a pathogen that it is able to bind, such as the antibodies. And this happens a little bit later. Uh, the response time is uh, days, not hours, like the innate immunity. So if we take a look at, at a graph such as this, we can see that if someone's exposed to a virus and the viral load over time proliferates and gets larger and larger, initially there will be an innate immune response, which if unable to reduce the viral load significantly, will then induce the adaptive immunity to come on. Uh, days later, which will which should be able to deal with the viral load and re reduce it and uh, resolve illness. So again, let's go back to the title of the article. Now we're talking about attenuation of the innate immune response. So why would we want to reduce the innate immune response if uh, we want to be able to fight uh, an infection? Well, let's take a look at that as we as as we get deeper into this article. The authors begin by stating that the innate immune system is crucial to our survival, but excessive or persistent pro-inflammatory cytokine production can result in tissue damage and organ injury, such as an autoimmune disease. So there you go. That gives you some idea as to why potentially having an attenuated or decreased uh, innate immune response might be a beneficial thing. We don't want excessive or persistent pro-inflammatory responses by our immune system. Another point the authors say is that acute activation of the sympathetic nervous system attenuates inflammation via activation of uh, beta-2 adrenal receptors by catecholamines. Catecholamines are a type of chemical substance. Here, let's do a quick search. Here we go. Catecholamines are a group of similar substances released into the blood in response to physical or emotional stress. So the most common ones that people know of, I believe, are epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine. So we know that release of those chemicals can have a, an acute increase of the sympathetic nervous system, which will reduce inflammation of the immune response. 
So what that tells us is that exogenous modulation of the autonomic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system is part of the autonomic nervous system. And by having exogenous or out of the body exposure to those catecholamines, such as epinephrine, norepinephrine, can have an effect on the autonomic nervous system. However, they go on to say that endogenous stimulation of the autonomic nervous system activity may also limit inflammatory response. But since the autonomic nervous system is generally regarded as the system that cannot be voluntarily influenced, this seems unlikely, right? However, the authors go on to say, results from a recently performed case study on a Dutch individual who holds several world records, you know who that is, with regard to withstanding extreme cold suggest otherwise. It was shown that this individual was able to voluntarily activate the sympathetic nervous system through a self-developed method uh, involving meditation, exposure to cold, and breathing techniques. This resulted in increased catecholamine and cortisol release and a remarkably mild innate immune response during experimental endotoxemia compared with more than 100 subjects who previously underwent, underwent experimental endotoxemia. So there's a lot to unpack there. So the authors established that the sympathetic nervous system, when it is modulated by giving somebody these catecholamines, these uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, or uh, dopamine, we can have a, an effect on the immune response. And what the authors are claiming is from a case study, they were able to show that Wim Hof is able to voluntarily impact his sympathetic nervous system by endogenously, make, meaning inside his body, he's able to release these catecholamines, this epinephrine, and that results in reduced inflammatory response. Now, they say that, that they tested this via experimental endotoxemia. So what is that? Here's my best explanation for that. So here you can think of this as the cell of a bacteria such as E. coli, and these E. coli have these substances they make up that make up its cell wall, which are called endotoxin. So endotoxins are the lipid portions of lipopolysaccharides that are part of the outer membrane of the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria. E. coli fall into this category. The endotoxins are liberated when the bacteria die and the cell wall breaks apart. So how could endotoxin cause an immune response in a human individual, here is a proposed mechanism. So here you have a macrophage, which is a white blood cell type that can phagocytose or eat this bacterium, which has endotoxin in its um, cell wall. And then as the macrophage ingests and starts breaking down the bacterial cell wall, the endotoxin or the lipopolysaccharide will be released and induce this macrophage to release what are called cytokines. And then these cytokines then can be released into the bloodstream and go and they can travel all the way to the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is this temperature control center of the brain. And in there, the cytokines can induce the hypothalamus to produce these things called prostaglandins, which will then reset the body's thermostat to a higher temperature and cause fever. So what they're saying in this introduction is that compared to normal people, when you expose Wim Hof to this endotoxin, he's able to voluntarily increase his catecholamine release in his body 
to deal with that innate immune response and not have the same fever-like symptoms that people normally get. So in this study, we, the authors, they say, investigated the effects of his training program. So the training program of meditation, exposure to cold, and the breathing techniques on sympathetic nervous system parameters and the innate immune response in healthy male volunteers during experimental endotoxemia in a randomized control fashion. So yeah, like I said, if you talk to him and ask him whether he's special or whether anyone can do the things he does, he will say that anyone can do them and he's able to train them. And that's exactly what they did. He trained uh, the people who were volunteers of this study to see if they would have the same increase in the sympathetic nervous system activity and a reduction in the innate immune response. All right, let's take a closer look at the materials and methods of the study to get a good understanding of how it was conducted. So there were 30 healthy, non-smoking Dutch male volunteers who were included in the trial. The subjects had a normal physical examination. They had routine laboratory values. The subjects were randomly allocated to a trained group, which was 18 people of the 30, and a control group, which was 12. After having fulfilled the training program, 12, 12 of the 18 trained subjects were randomly assigned to participate in the experimental endotoxemia experiments. I find it strange that they had 30 volunteers and decided to divide it up unevenly and then follow that up by having the trained group, not, all of, not everyone from the trained group, participate in the experimental endotoxemia. I find that uh, very strange and kind of like a weakness of the study. Not to mention the fact that there's only 30 volunteers, but of course, this is just a pilot study. It's just to be, it's more to be used as a proof of concept, of course. And so that's more reasonable. Just the fact that they had 18 trained volunteers, but six of them weren't used for the experimental endotoxemia is quite strange. And uh, I think a shortfall of the study. Okay, looking into the study design and training parameters, the study was sequentially conducted in two identical blocks. They had nine subjects in the train group and six subjects in the control group. And then I guess they did that twice. So you got 18 in the trained and then 12 in the control group. They did not assess the effects of the training intervention on the immune system parameters in the absence of endotaxemia, right? So they didn't do any tests to see like if the people had anything different, if the trained group had anything different from the control group prior to the endotoxemia, it was the only difference looked at was post-endotoxemia or during the actual endotoxemia. The group was trained by Dutch individual Wim Hof and three trainers. These are people that Wim trained himself. They also had a medical doctor and the principal investigator were present during all the training sessions and during the experimental endotoxemia experiments. One thing that I thought was interesting from, from reading this is that it tells me that even though it was a randomized uh, trial, the principal investigator, because he was present during all the training sessions and during the experimental endotoxemia experiments, he would not have been blinded to the experiment. So that some people could look at that and say that that's a weakness as well. Okay, so there were four days of training in Poland, and the program, the training program consisted of three main elements. There was meditation exposure to cold, and breathing techniques. Regarding meditation, this was the so-called third eye meditation, which is a form of meditation including visualizations and a total relaxation. 
Now, in terms of the training, the subjects voluntarily exposed themselves to cold in several ways. They did some standing in snow barefoot for up to 30 minutes. They lied bare-chested in the snow for 20 minutes. They did daily dipping or swimming in ice-cold water, which would have been 0 to 1 degree Celsius for up to several minutes, including complete submersions. And this is the last thing they did. They hiked up a snowy mountain with an elevation of almost 1.6 kilometers, bare-chested, wearing nothing but shorts and shoes at temperatures ranging from five to, minus 5 to minus 12 degrees Celsius. If you take wind chill into account, it's much colder, somewhere around minus 12 to minus 27 degrees Celsius. That's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, lots of meditation, is meditation, exposing yourself to the cold, and then the breathing techniques. Now, there are two different kind of breathing techniques, which is very interesting because... Um, when I was first exposed to Wim Hof and the Wim Hof method and the breathing technique, I only knew of one, but there were two used in this study. So the first one is the one that I know. In this one, subjects are asked to hyperventilate for an average of 30 breaths. Subsequently, the subjects exhale and hold their breath for two to three minutes. This is called the retention phase. The duration of breath retention is entirely up to the discretion of the subject himself. Then breath retention is followed up by a deep inhalation breath that is held for 10 seconds. And then subsequently, a new cycle begins with the hyperventilation to uh, starting all over again. So that's the one that I'm, like I said, most familiar with. And then the second exercise consisted of deep inhalations and exhalations in which every inhalation and exhalation was followed by a breath hold for 10 seconds, during which the subject tightened all his body muscles. All right, so that's very interesting. So quite different from the first one, less, much shorter breath retention, only 10 seconds compared to two to three minutes in the first one. So these two breathing exercises were also performed during the endotoxemia experiments. So when the subjects were exposed to this endotoxin at that time, they were doing these breathing uh, exercises as a way of influencing their sympathetic nervous system and dampening the immune response. So after returning from Poland, the subjects had practiced the techniques they learned daily by themselves at home for two to three hours a day. They did cold exposure by uh, taking cold showers uh, and the endotoxemia experiment day happened five to nine days later. So they had two groups. I guess the first group would have been five days later and the second would have been nine days later. So that at least uh, while it's different amounts of time, I don't think it's a, that big of a difference in terms of time after training uh, to do the endotoxemia experiment. So at least that was kept somewhat similar. Now, again, six of the nine trained subjects were randomly selected for participation. And then they go on to say here that this selection was performed to allow for subject replacement in case of an adverse event or illness in one of the trained subjects. But that makes no, no sense. You just You just... You just test all nine subjects, and, and if some of them have adverse events or illness, you just report that. You don't replace. Again, quite quite strange. Now, they go on to say that the selective subject subjects practiced in a final training session led by Wim Hof, Wim Hof on the day before the endotoxemia experiment day, and then Wim was also present to coach the subjects during the endotoxemia experiment day uh, for three hours that the subjects in the train group practiced their breathing techniques. The control group did not undergo any training procedures throughout the study period. So what I get from this is that they actually didn't have that much time that they trained. They only had four days that they trained in Poland with WIM. They got an extra day uh, of training with WIM uh, 
on the day before the endotoxemia experiment, and then they had additional kind of coaching during the actual experiment as well. So that's not a lot of time to be doing these uh, this meditation, cold exposure, and uh, and the breathing techniques. Uh, yet, you know, we'll see that there the short, short amount of time and and uh, training can have a significant impact. Okay, let's talk about the actual endotoxemia experiment. So the subjects had refrained from caffeine or alcohol-containing substances 24 hours before the start of the experiment and food 10 hours before the start of the endotoxemia experiment. The experiments were performed at the research unit of the intensive care department. LPS solution was administered. So LPS is the endotoxin. That's what was administered as an IV bolus injection. And then during the study, continuous monitoring of blood pressure and blood sampling was going on. They also were checking the heart rate, the respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, and body temperature, taking lots of different measurements. And so LPS is the endotoxin. So the endotoxin-induced flu-like symptoms such as headache, nausea, shivering, muscle, and back pain were scored every 30 minutes on a six-point Likert scale, uh, zero equaling no symptoms and five equaling the worst ever experienced resulting in a total score of 0 to 25. So there's some objective measurements and some subjective measurements of discomfort as well. 30 minutes before the lipopolysaccharide administration, which is the endotoxin, the subjects in the train group started their first breathing technique, which was the hyperventilation, until about uh, an hour after the administration of the endotoxin, followed by the second breathing technique, which was the deep inhalation and exhalation in combination with the tightening of muscles. They did that until two and a half hours post-exposure to endotoxin. Afterward, the subject stopped practicing all techniques and the control group did not practice anything throughout the whole endotoxemia experiment day. So the trained group basically did the breathing techniques for about three hours as they were receiving this endotoxin and having all their measurements taken and then also some of the subjective measurements of their uh, fever-like symptoms while the control group did not do any breathing techniques whatsoever and had the same measurements taken. So what other measurements did they do? Regarding catecholamines, they had plasma, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and dopamine, dopamine concentrations, which were measured using routine analysis methods. Regarding cortisol, that was also cortisol levels were determined. Um, they also did leukocyte counts, so that's white blood cells analysis of leukocyte counts and differentiation was performed, again, using routine analysis methods. Plasma cytokines, they looked at concentrations of TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, interleukin-8, and IL-10. These were measured using luminex assay, which is another basically routine analysis method. Before we go any further, let me just do a quick introduction of cytokines. So think of cytokines as proteins that are secreted by cells for communication. And what they can do is uh, if a cell is receives stimulus and then it produces cytokines, those cytokines can go find another cell, bind a receptor, and trigger some sort of response in that target cell. Now there are five different types of cytokines, and also the cytokines can be subdivided into pro-inflammatory or immunosuppressive. Uh, one of the types is interleukins, uh, which is the ones that are going to be uh, we're going to talk about in the paper. So interleukins, they, they help communication between blood, white blood cells, and they help promote differentiation of white blood cells into sp different subtypes. And then there's also TNFs, which are tumor necrosis factors. These bind cell receptors, and they promote cell death 
and they can induce fever as well. Uh, so as you can see, these interleukin uh, structures here, they're kind of much more similar. They have these alpha helices in the structure, as you, as you can see in the images here, whereas TNF-alpha is quite, quite a bit different. It has these beta sheet uh, structural components, and it also looks to be quite a lot larger than these ones. Now, interleukin-10 is considered more of an immunosuppressive uh, cytokine, so it reduces inflammation, whereas the other three, IL-6, IL-8, and TNF-alpha, these are more so pro-inflammatory and they will more so induce fever-like symptoms. All right, so with all that in mind, let's check out the results of the endotoxemia experiment. So when looking at the cardiorespiratory parameters, temperature, and symptoms, the authors saw that in the control group, there wasn't really any substantial change during the experiment regarding these parameters. However, in the trained individual group, that had practiced learning the breathing techniques, when they did so, it resulted in an immediate and profound decrease of carbon dioxide and bicarbonate and an increase in pH, reaching up to 7.75 in individual subjects, indicating acute respiratory alkalosis, which normalized quickly after cessation of the breathing techniques. <laughs> All right, so this makes sense because when you're hyperventilating, you're breathing out a lot more carbon dioxide. So you should see a decrease in the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. And then that makes sense that with the decrease in carbon dioxide, the pH should go up, meaning that it's al alkaline. So alkalosis is the opposite of acidosis. All right, so we're going the opposite in the opposite direction in terms of the blood pH. Now, in terms of the lipopolysaccharide administration, that's the endotoxin, this resulted in a fever with a maximum temperature increase in the control group of 1.9 degrees Celsius, whereas this increase was less pronounced and normalized earlier in the trained group. We see that in this graph here where the uh, temperature of both the trained and control uh, individuals in the study rises during the endotoxemia experiment. However, in the trained individuals, the peak is not as high as in the control group, and it does seem to normalize quite a bit sooner, as you can see here. Now, regarding the subjective scores, remember there are some self-reported subjective scores of the fever-like symptoms. So the, na the nausea, headache, shivering, and muscle and back pain, which was on that six-point scale, they peaked at 1.5 hours after the lipopolysaccharide administration in both groups, but were attenuated in the trained individuals compared to the control group. There was about a 56% reduction in peak levels. We see that in this graph labeled J here, where the controlled individuals, the scores that they reported in terms of the subjective feelings of discomfort from the endotaxemia experiment are much higher early on in the control group than the trained group. Okay, what about the catecholamine levels? Well, they uh, measured that plasma epinephrine levels increased sharply one hour after lipopolysaccharide administration and peaked at T equals 1.5 hours after administration in the control group. In trained subjects, baseline epinephrine levels were significantly higher compared to the control group. And not only that, but after starting practicing the learned breathing techniques, epinephrine levels further increased in the trained group and peaked just before 
administration of lipopolysaccharide. And they remained elevated until cessation of the breathing techniques. And in contrast to epinephrine, norepinephrine and dopamine levels remained within the reference range throughout the experiment. So really the effect was by the epinephrine and not the other catecholamines. They also showed that there was no difference in blood levels of the stress hormone cortisol between the two groups before or during the period in which the trained group practiced their techniques. However, they did show that the levels normalized more quickly in the trained individuals. So let's take a quick look at that on these graphs. So here is epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine. Those are the three types of catecholamines and then cortisol which is the uh, stress hormone. And we can see that of the three catecholamines, really only the epinephrine shows a big difference between the control and trained groups where the epinephrine amounts we see are quite a bit higher in the trained group to start out with and they shoot up even higher still uh, compared to the control group. Not a big difference in norepinephrine or, or dopamine. And then as was already stated for cortisol, it's about the same between the two groups, although the trained group does resolve and come back down much quicker than the uh, control group. And these are all statistically significant results. All right, what about leukocyte counts? Are they different? So leukocytes are white blood cells. So the authors say that total leukocyte counts in both groups showed the typical endotoxemia-induced biphasic pattern with an initial leukopenia, followed by leukocytosis. So leukopenia means a decrease in leukocytes or white blood cells, followed by leukocytosis, which means an increase in leukocytes or white, white blood cells. Uh, the authors also say that leukocyte concentrations were markedly higher in trained individuals, and 30 minutes after start of breathing techniques, an increase in lymphocytes, which are a type of leukocyte, it's a type of white blood cell, was observed in trained individuals which was not present in the control group. Furthermore, the concentrations of neutrophils and monocytes, further types of uh, leukocytes, were similar between groups at the early time point, but were distinctly higher in the trained group at later time points. We can see that in these graphs here. Here is the total leukocyte, so all the white blood cell count. And you can see that leukopenia, the decrease in the first hour, followed by leukocytosis and increase. And we can see that the train group has markedly higher levels of leukocytes or white blood cells all throughout the experiment. When we look at the particular types of white blood cells, such as lymphocytes, monocytes, and neutrophils, we can see that throughout the different parts of the experiment, there are times where specific white blood cells are increased in number in the train group compared to the control group. So interestingly enough, even though the immune response in terms of feeling the fever-like symptoms is dampened, the actual immune system with the white blood cells that are ready to uh, fight for the body, let's say, or uh, fight against the pathogen, those numbers are actually up and increased. Okay, and lastly, let's look at the plasma cytokines as well. So plasma concentrations are of pro-inflammatory cytokines, TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, and interleukin-8, and the anti-inflammatory cytokine, interleukin-10, all markedly increased after lipopolysaccharide administration in both groups. However, in the trained individuals, the pro-inflammatory ones, TNF-alpha, IL-6, and 8, 
those levels were significantly attenuated or decreased, whereas the IL-10, the anti-inflammatory one, the IL-10 response was greatly augmented compared with the control group. So the anti-inflammatory response was augmented or increased in the trained group compared to the control group. Furthermore, IL-10 levels in the trained group increased sharply early after lipopolysaccharide administration and peaked one hour before the peak observed in the control group. So here's two ways to represent the same data. One is a time course of the blood concentration of the levels of cytokines. We have TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, and 8. Those are the pro-inflammatory cytokines, the ones that would make someone feel fever-like symptoms. And we can see that the control group has significantly higher levels of these pro-inflammatory cytokines than the trained group does, both when you plot it in this graph and when you calculate the area under the curve and uh, represent the data with these bar graphs. It's statistically significant for an increase in those pro-inflammatory cytokines for the control group. And then we can see in the trained group, there's a much larger increase of the anti-inflammatory or the immune suppressive IL-10. So in addition to the measurements made that I already mentioned, the authors also did a little bit of correlation analysis between the hormones and cytokines that were measured. And so here's what they found. They saw that there was a strong positive correlation between epinephrine levels in the trained group at T equals zero. So just at the moment of the exposure to endotoxin and the early increase in interleukin-10, which is the anti-inflammatory cytokine. And uh, they specifically looked at the levels at T equals one, so one hour post-exposure, because this was the time point at which the interleukin levels peaked. And they also say that this was not the same association, was not present in the control group. Uh, additionally, there were significant inverse correlations between levels of anti-inflammatory cytokine IL-10 at T equals one hour and peak levels of the pro-inflammatory mediators TNF-alpha at T equals 1.5 hours. So one and a half hours post exposure to endotoxin. This was when TNF-alpha had peaked and interleukin 6 and 8 at T equals 2 hours. So two hours post exposure to endotoxin. This was when these cytokines had peaked. So there was an inverse correlation between the levels of the anti-inflammatory IL-10 to the levels of the pro-inflammatory TNF-alpha and IL-6 in the trained group. Again, in the control group, there was no such inverse correlation found. Let's take a look at the figure more closely. So here we see that epinephrine levels at the start of the experiment have a high correlation with interleukin levels one hour past exposure to endotoxin. So the higher the epinephrine levels were, the more uh, increase of interleukin-10, the anti-inflammatory cytokine, the more there was an increase of uh, release of that uh, cytokine, as you can see in this graph. The lower the amount of epinephrine, the less anti-inflammatory cytokine was released. Now, when you look at the levels of that anti-inflammatory cytokine IL-10, at one hour compared to the pro-inflammatory cytokine release at one and a half hour for TNF-alpha and two hours at for IL-6 and IL-8, you see that there's an inverse correlation where the higher the number of IL-10, the anti-inflammatory cytokine, the lower the levels of the 
pro-inflammatory cytokine TNF-alpha, as you can see here, as well as the IL-6 on this side and IL-8 over here. And of course, the reverse is true here, where I, when IL-10 is low at the one-hour mark post-exposure to endotoxin, we see that the pro-inflammatory markers, TNF-alpha, is high at one and a half hours, and it's also high for the pro-inflammatory markers of IL-6 and IL-8. At the two-hour mark, you can see that here as well. So that's all the results that the paper presents here. And just a quick summary, we see that during this endotoxemia experiment, we see a clear difference between the trained and control group. First of all, we see that in the trained group, in terms of like the partial pressure of carbon dioxide due to the hyperventilation, there's an, a decrease of carbon dioxide in the trained group, which leads to uh, blood pH increasing or alkalosis. And then we also see that the subjective measures of the uh, um, flu-like symptoms from endotoxemia are much lower in the trained group than the control group. When they looked at the hormone levels, they saw that there was a big difference in terms of epinephrine, both at the start of the experiment from in, in comparison from the trained to the control group, the trained group had much higher. And then also from the actual exposure to endotoxemia, the uh, kind of increased levels of uh, epinephrine were much greater in the trained group compared to the control group. And then this led to also differences or there was also concomitant kind of measured differences in terms of the uh, uh, white blood cell count. The trained group seemed to have a significantly larger white blood cell count. And then there's a difference in the array of cytokines was released or measured in the trained group. There seemed to be a higher amount of the anti-inflammatory cytokine IL-10 in the trained group compared to a decreased amount of the uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines IL-6, 8, and TNF-alpha in the trained group in comparison to the control. So what does that all mean? Let's go into the discussion and dig a little bit deeper. So the authors start by saying that the short training program and practicing breathing techniques result in release of epinephrine, induction of early anti-inflammatory IL-10 production, and consequently attenuation of the pro-inflammatory innate immune response during experimental human endotoxemia. So that kind of just summarizes what I said in terms of all the results that we observed. They go on to say that trained individuals experienced fewer endotoxemia-associated flu-like symptoms and a more swift normalization of fever and cortisol levels. This study demonstrates that in vivo, innate immune response can be voluntarily influenced in a non-pharmacological manner through voluntary activation of the sympathetic nervous system. So this is a very important point here. This is a non-pharmacological manner. Normally, you would, let's say, take epinephrine in a pill form or whatever, maybe an IV as a way to reduce the sympathetic nervous, uh, sorry, to activate the sympathetic nervous system in order to reduce the immune response. But you can do this. It's still pharmacological in a way because, but it's endogenous if you think about it, because your own body produces the epinephrine and releases it. And so through the breathing technique, meditation, cold exposure, I'm sure all these things work together to help someone to be able to voluntarily activate this release of epinephrine in order to activate the sympathetic nervous system and suppress suppress the uh, 
flu-like immune response symptoms. Here the authors say, in agreement with previously performed study where epinephrine was IV administered before lipopolysaccharide, which is the endotoxin, in healthy volunteers and resulted in early and increased IL-10 production and with studies showing that pretreatment with IL-10 results in attenuation of the pro-inflammatory response in healthy volunteers. So there you go. There's already some evidence that kind of supports the same thing where, like I said, you could give someone through IV, I guess, epinephrine, or you could have someone produce epinephrine endogenously through the breathing techniques. And we see that both seem to have similar results in that it, it, you basically have an early and increased production of this IL-10, interleukin-10, the anti-inflammatory cytokine. And furthermore, there's even some preliminary evidence that says that if you give someone IL-10 to begin with, right before you give them the endo endotoxin, then you will have the similar response as well in terms of uh, reducing the inflammatory response. Now here the authors say that the early increases in lymphocytes and subsequent higher concentrations of circulating neutrophils in the training group compared with the control, control group can also be attributed to the elevated epinephrine levels found in trained individuals as catecholamines induce leukocytosis characterized by an initial, initial lymphocytosis followed by an increase of other sub, subpopulations. So yeah, uh, this is kind of what we showed in here where we saw that the trained individuals had a significantly higher amount of leukocytes or white blood cells. And then when you looked at the specific white blood cell types, lymphocytes, monocytes, neutrophils, you could see that those individual ones were significantly higher in the trained group. Although one weakness of the study you could say is the fact that they only measured these three subtypes, lymphocytes, monocytes, and neutrophils, whereas there are many more subtypes than just those three mentioned. And that's exactly what the authors go on to say here. Our study is limited by the fact that we did not measure specific leukocyte subtypes such as CD3, CD4, and CD8 numbers, as well as B cells, dendritic cells, and natural killer cells, some of which have been shown to be specifically altered by catecholamines and or stress. Yeah, so... You know, the study is a little bit incomplete uh, in terms of like missing this data, but at least they did have the total uh, leukocyte count that we see here. And in terms of like total leukocytes, we see that there's definitely, there is a statistically significant larger amount of leukocytes in the train group post uh, uh, exposure to endotoxin than there is in the control not trained group. So what accounts for all this? Is it the meditation, the breathing techniques, the cold exposure? The authors say here, mainly the breathing techniques used by the trained individuals account for the increase in epinephrine and subsequent attenuation of the inflammatory response. So the authors attribute it to the breathing. A limitation of our study design is that it does not allow the identification of the particular component of the practiced breathing exercises that results in increased epinephrine levels. That's right. Like I already said, we don't know if it's like the actual breathing, if it's the meditation, if it's the cold exposure or a combination of all of them together. And even with the breathing techniques, there are two separate breathing techniques, which one's more effective or which one's doing more. We don't have answers to those questions. However, the effects on epinephrine are likely a consequence of both the hyper hyperventilation phase and hypoxia due to breath retention, as both have been demonstrated to increase epinephrine levels. Yeah, so that's right, because the breath retention is quite long, right? When you do the hyperventilation and you, uh, ex and you expel all that carbon dioxide 
from the bloodstream. What that allows you to do is to hold your breath or do the breath retention for much longer, uh, approaching two minutes. If some people do it for longer, three or four minutes. So with that extreme amount of breath retention, that is the, I think, signal. That's what Wim Hof at least says is the signal for the release of the epinephrine levels. And so it's almost like a trick because normally the, you would not be able to hold your breath or let the oxygen saturation in the body to go down so significantly without the hyperventilation. But because you do the hyperventilation, then you do the breath hold and you're able to hold your breath for such a long period of time, you're inducing the stress response even though you're in a very calm kind of environment. Obviously, when you do these breathing techniques, if you don't have the endotoxemia going on at the same time, you can be in a quite a calm state. And while in this calm state, you're reducing the stress response of, re of releasing epinephrine, which can have this impact on uh, attenuating the inflammatory response. Here the authors say the attenuated cytokine response is unlikely to be a direct result from the low partial pressure of carbon dioxide and high pH levels because it is not associated, those things are not associated with anti-inflammatory effects. Therefore, epinephrine is the most probable intermediate factor. Right. So I think, like I said, the, the, the low partial pressure of carbon dioxide, that's really what's able to someone to hold their breath for a long period of time. And that's really most likely the reason behind the high levels of epinephrine release. In terms of the high blood pH, the neocalosis, I'm sure that has some sort of effect. I'm not sure what exactly the effect is, but um, that's another question for another study, of course. The authors say, nevertheless, it cannot be ruled out that elements that other elements of the training, apart from practicing the breathing exercises, ultimately affected the lipopolysaccharide-induced innate immune response. For instance, the exposition to the extreme cold and subsequent rewarming during the training sessions might have resulted in ischemic preconditioning and or release of danger-associated molecule pot patterns, which could result in a tolerant state of a subsequent lipopolysaccharide challenge. Right, so we don't know exactly what part of the training that Wim Hof offered these uh, volunteers of the study is responsible for the results that we see when we expose them to the endotoxin. The exposure to cold could be causing some sort of body adaptation that is not accounted for, and that might be the reason why they have this uh, diminished immune response. We don't fully know. And another shortcoming of the study is the authors say that it remains to be determined whether the results of this study using an acute model of inflammation in healthy volunteers can be extrapolated to the patients with chronic autoimmune disease. So yeah, I mean, in this particular um, experiment, it's acute inflammation because you are acutely exposed to endotoxin, right? They gave them, they gave them the, an IV kind of bolus of of endotoxin or the lipopolysaccharide. And so making a claim that this breathing technique could be helpful for people with chronic immune disease, specifically autoimmune disease, might be a bit of a stretch. So again, more research, more data is needed to be collected to be able to answer a question such as, can the results from this study be applied to people with chronic autoimmune diseases? The, author, the authors end with, in conclusion, the present proof of principle study demonstrates that the sympathetic nervous system and immune system can be voluntarily influenced through practicing techniques that are relatively easy to learn within a short time frame. 
It therefore could have important implications for the treatment of a variety of conditions associated with excessive or persistent inflammation, especially autoimmune diseases. So there you go. Those are the methods, the results, and the discussion points of this paper. Some of the drawbacks that I already mentioned is the fact that they didn't use all the volunteers that got trained in the actual endotoxemia study. Also, the fact that the study is pretty small. There were only 30 volunteers for the whole thing. So it's hard to make uh, large sweeping generalizations based on that. However, the fact that many of the measurements, the differences in measurements were statistically significant despite the low number of volunteers in the study gives me confidence in the fact that uh, the differences we're seeing are actually important and valuable to note. I think it was quite impressive the fact that uh, Wim Hof only had four, five days to help these uh, trained individuals to get ready for this endotoxemia study and to show that not only is he able to have such a big difference in how his body responds to this experiment, but he's able to show other people in a short duration of time to be able to learn and be able to do these things. Of course, the most impressive part of this whole thing is the fact that you're voluntarily having an impact on your sympathetic nervous system through these breathing techniques. And the sympathetic nervous system, like I already said, is part of the autonomic nervous system, which was never believed to be something that you could voluntarily influence through actions you take. But to me, this, is, this study provides clear evidence that it can be done and it can be learned. And of course, like I already said, this has implica implications for autoimmune disease, as if we can you know, dampen the immune response, potentially we can uh, keep autoimmune disease in more, more in check. But this is, it's too early to, make, to jump to those conclusions, of course. The results of this are quite stunning and uh, suggest that we should follow up and do more research and kind of pick up the breadcrumbs one at a time and see what more data we can collect and what more conclusions we can come to. But it's still too early to say that autoimmune disease could be cured through doing something like these breathing techniques. Nevertheless, it's very promising, and I think the downside of doing something like this or practicing these breathing techniques is quite low, so it actually doesn't hurt to try and to do these things, and there's other benefits that probably could be uh, um, gained from doing this on a consistent basis besides the uh, dampening of the immune response. And remember, it's not that the whole immune system is downregulated because what we saw from the study was that uh, lymphocytes that are part of the innate immune response, those, the cell count for those is actually increased. It's just the fact that the cytokines, the pro-inflammatory cytokines that induce fever, that is what's downregulated. And that's an important uh, difference because you want the uh, immune system still uh, revved up in the background and ready to interject if there's some sort of pathogen that you're exposed to. All right. And with that, we've reached the end of the podcast. I believe this was a really fun one for me to share with everyone. I really enjoyed going back and uh, rereading this study. And there's definitely things that I'd forgotten from it, like the fact that there's actually two different breathing techniques. I only focused on the one. Definitely going to think about trying to incorporate the second breathing technique a little bit more often as well. And uh, definitely encourage everyone to check out this paper, read it for yourself. And if you're not much of a reader, then I would recommend checking out a video that does a great job of summarizing this in a shorter format than what I did for this podcast. 
If you go to YouTube and check out this video called Influencing the Immune System, Wim Hof Method Science, this uh, video's got nearly a million views. You can check it out. It's only five minutes long and does a great job of summarizing what I talked about in this episode. With that said, thank you everybody for listening and stay strong, keep moving. I'll see you on the next one. Thanks again for watching or listening till the end of the podcast. If you have any follow-up questions or comments, please reach out and let me clear up any uncertainty. Either leave a comment or send an email to newsletter at jmartfit.com. That's all I have for you today, ladies and gents. Connect with me on social media at jmartfit on Instagram and Twitter and jmartmoves on Facebook. Or get my free bodyweight training program through subscribepage.com slash bodybasics. Jmart out.